Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, a Rhodesian farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. Something happening here, but what it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there, telling me I got to beware. I think it's time we stop, children. After the Vietnam War ended in 1975, it left many soldiers wandering the world looking for a war. Our little war in Rhodesia seemed to do the trick. And as a result, hundreds of Vietnam vets came over and fought as regulars in the Rhodesian army. Nobody's right if everybody's wrong. Young people speak in their minds. Are getting so much resistance from behind. It wasn't for the cash. The dosh was minimal. These guys were simply looking for a scrap. Their choice was the Rhodesian Light Infantry, or the RLI. This was the battalion I was to later join. These guys were tough and rough and, from our point of view, quite mad. This took some beating in Rhodesia, a country already overflowing with, well, with mad people anyway. It's time we stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going on. They bore gruesome trophies from Vietnam, such as dried ears on a cord around their necks, or, or necklaces made from a bullet that had killed someone, or perhaps one that had wounded them. And they had stories that would simply make your blood curdle. These Mad Max men often became highly decorated in the Rhodesian army and appeared to be, well, quite fearless. Although much of that might have been because of utter madness. I think they were all a little bit cooked. They brought with them the crude Vietnam colloquialisms, such as Frantam for the insidious napalm, Gooks for terrorists. And they also brought with them a new sort of counterinsurgency warfare which involved low-level para-drops at 400 feet. I kid you not. No other army in the world did such low-level drops. And the RLI's signature method of fighting, the fire force as it was known, was a lethal airborne tactic that began in Vietnam but was perfected in Rhodesia, eventually becoming the principal strike method in the army. What they also brought was an international louche and a general hippie air to many army units. They were a ragtag, lost tribe coming from the USA, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa and the UK. Rhodesians were by and large landlocked insular people, so it was an eye-opener. 
These soldiers of fortune smoked dope, took many Class A drugs such as heroin and speed, and although they were fighting for our side, they held little allegiance either way, at least most of them anyway. Yet they were also charming in a strange sort of way. They were misfits, as was I, and I never came upon one mercenary or Vietnam vet who cast a critical eye over me or judged me in any way other than that which I deserved, which, I hope, was respect. That said, they would happily beat the bejesus out of you if you caught them on a bad day. A lot of these guys never made it out alive, many getting killed in firefights, whilst others drifted off to other wars and eventually got themselves killed there. I can't overemphasize the impression these soldiers made on a growing child, and with that in mind, I think we grew up to be quite tough-skinned and quite rowdy. And it was to Kariba that we would return time and time again to soak up the atmosphere, soak up the rays, do some fishing, and enjoy the atmosphere amongst these rough-and-ready soldiers of fortune. Lake Kariba was our choice of local holiday destination. Kariba was and is the largest man-made lake in the world by volume. It stretches an incredible 120 kilometers along the border of Zimbabwe and Zambia on the Zambezi River. During the 1970s Bush War, it was the favored holiday destination. It was our Cote d'Azur, it was our Riviera. Palm-fringed hotels and casinos dotted the lake edge. Water skiing, game viewing and fishing for tigerfish dominated the daylight hours. Whilst at night, the place became party central. Soldiers and R&R would crowd the bars beside the swimming pools and drink until they fell over, picked up chicks and vented their testosterone-fueled brains. We loved Kariba and our families would descend en masse most holidays, spending one night in the bright lights, as we like to think it amid the rowdy soldiers having a flutter at the casino at Caribbean Bay Resort, and then off to the wilderness across the lake in Matusadana National Park. <coughs> and it was to this wilderness that I learned to spearfish. Dave Willis was a young farm manager on Muravord Farm in the Victory Block, an extradition soldier who was also fearless and a national champion spearfisherman with a charming, fun demeanor. And he took a shine to me, inviting me to Kariba on spearfishing adventures. 
As I say, Dave was quite fearless, and whilst I might have been quite a tough kid, I was still absolutely terrified of crocs and hippos. He would take us out on his boat down the most creepy, weed-infested creeks on the lake, surely breeding grounds for giant crocs. I would grip the side of the boat as if my life depended on it. Indeed, my life probably did depend on it. Yet I also loved spearfishing. The adrenaline would course through your body as you fitted your mask and fins and weight belt. No oxygen tanks were used here. This was stealth diving. Bubbles would attract attention. We would cut the engine and quietly glide into an inlet, floating islands of Kariba weed and bulrushes slipping past. Often we would be greeted with a splash or a snort from a surprised hippo or some other critter. What was that? I would squeak timidly. Dave would calmly look around, roll his eyes and say, well, only one way to find out, and grabbing me would suddenly chuck me into the water as close as possible to the splash. <laughs> He was not one for scaredy cats. Dave believed that crocs would never take a man when they were underwater, which is fine so long as you have the lungs of an otter and can stay submerged for an eternity. Whilst my lung power was admirable, whatever goes down must come up. And it was during those brief periods on the surface that I was most terrified. The water in Kariba was relatively clear, but attack from a croc from behind was quite possible. As it happened on numerous occasions with Dave, only getting hauled out of the water and into the boat just in time. Did it excite me? Definitely. Did it terrify me? Absolutely. Frankly, I used to shit myself. I learnt to dive like a cormorant, straight down with as little a splash as possible, which was the preferred method. Splashy swimmers were a hazard. You didn't want to be around them. But once on the riverbed, you would allow the weights to stabilise you on the bottom, whilst you peered fixedly into the gloom, eyes on stalks looking for any weird movement, ready to fire that spear gun at anything larger than a guppy. There was, of course, one other slight problem. I was blind as a bloody bat. In the days prior to contact lenses, this meant that I wouldn't have seen the backside of a bloody hippo from two yards away, or a croc for that matter. It's possibly the main reason why I never managed to spear many fish. I just couldn't see the damn things. The last time I dived with Dave was on a river inlet on Kariba called Nayudza, well known for its crocs. Where the crocs are, so too are the fish, Dave would laugh. I mean, it's obvious, huh? Do you want to spear fish or not? We anchored near a half-submerged island and began diving. My skills or eyesight hadn't improved, and whilst Dave continually returned to the boat laden with massive, gorgeous Mozambique bream, I shot nothing. 
After about an hour, I was swimming in a deep, rather silted channel, close to the river bed. Spear gun pointed ahead, eyes once again extended like hermit crabs, when I suddenly came across a croc, about two and a half metres in length, quite small, all things considered, lying quietly on the bottom. But, hey, it was still a croc. Frankly, I'm not too sure who got the biggest fright, the croc or me, but my scream underwater was possibly enough to send every reptile skedaddling for safety. Aquaman had nothing on me. Daryl Hannah in Splash would have appreciated my watery squeal. Swimming backwards on my back, kicking like 40 bastards, spear gun facing the way I'd come, half expecting the jaws of a croc to snap on my fins. I kicked up so much bloody silt and mud, I doubt very much if any reptile would have even seen me. My diving for the day was done. My nerves were frazzled and shot to hell. Well, I'm not having you in the boat making a bloody racket, said Dave. Some of us have to hunt for dinner. Why not take a beer and go and sit on that submerged island? It seemed like a good enough idea. So off I went to paddle and splash and relax amongst the torpedo grass which covered the island. After a while, Dave shouted for us to go. We've caught enough, he said, and with that, I hopped back onto the boat, cracked open another beer and glanced back at the island. Jesus H. Christ pointing at the very spot I'd been basking in. A massive five-meter croc emerged from the shallow water and slowly glided back into the deep water. It must have been watching me all the time, perhaps even stalking me. Now that's a croc, Dave stated unnecessarily, and with a shrug started the engine and took off down the river. My diving days were over. Quite a few local Mbukwe's families would descend on these remote fishing camps along the shores of Kariba. Us Woods, the Francis's, the Hydes, the Nortons, the Moorcrofts, the Robertsons, together with their kids, this often made up a party of some, I don't know, 25 people, maybe more. It was chaotic and fun. We kids would doss down under the stars as far away from the folks as possible eat lavish meals prepared by our cookboys who came down a few days before on the lorry or a clapped-out ferry laden with paraffin fridges and deep freezers, crates of beer and food and Anne Francis's grey zodiac outboard, known disingenuously as Greyboat, but nicknamed by us kids as Russell's Ringpiece, after, I think, Russell Hyde which was always reserved for us kids. During the day, the old folks would scoot off in their boats fishing from dawn until dusk. And as crazy as it seems, us kids, aged between 12 and 15, would take out the Russell ring piece and get up to mischief. Our gang was known as the Hoods, predominantly made up of Mandy, my sister, me, Anne Francis's kids, Annabelle, William and James, 
Larry Norton, George Moorcroft, Mungo Hyde and his siblings. And there were a few other people as well. It was wonderful, despite the obvious danger from wildlife and, of course, from terrorists. I've been over this in other episodes. I mean, we were well-versed when it came to wild animals. But you just never knew. And what of terrorists? The boat probably held five people, but we often overloaded it with something like, oh, I don't know, eight or nine kids. In rough weather, it was a hazard. The only rule was to be home by sunset. And often, we would forget the time and get bollocked on for being late. It's weird thinking back, because I know we had the time of our lives, real salad days. Yet my diaries are full of anger towards the folks. To be fair, they gave us responsibility And we dishonoured that, and we didn't understand why they got angry. My diaries. August, September 1978. Tashinga, Lake Kariba. Us kids and our mums took the four-hour ferry over the lake. It was wonderful and possibly the last time us hoods will all be together as one group. Everything was fun until the men arrived. And they just never stopped whinging at us. The adults kept shouting at us for not doing our bit, not unpacking the ferry or the lorry fast enough, drinking too many Cokes, lounging about. At least the fishing was great. Caught 66 pounds of bream in one day. We managed to puncture Greyboat with the sharp fins of the fish. And then James put another hole in the boat with his fishing hook. We patched it up, of course, but the adults were furious. Plus, we got back to camp after dark. Third of September, 1978. We were to meet the adults for lunch at Boomy Hills, but the weather was terrible and the waves just awful, going right over the side of Greyboat. Jane Manger and Annabelle were crying. We only got to Boomy Hills at 3pm. Got shat upon for ruining their day's fishing. It wasn't our fault. Fourth of September, 1978. Bill Francis had to leave to go back to Salisbury for a meeting. He took his small boat across the lake and missed his flight at Kariba because of the rough weather. He returned to Tashinga, thank God, because the Air Rhodesia flight from Kariba was shot down by terrorists. There were 54 passengers on board. Only 18 survived. Eight of those went to look for help. The ten injured passengers left behind were shot at at point-blank range by the terrorists. 5th of September 1978. We thought we were to meet the parents beneath the red cliffs at 1pm. In fact, we were meant to meet them in the morning and the adults had been waiting for us. They gave us a huge, god-almighty bitching. Ben accused us of sabotaging their holiday. 
All holiday we were whinged at. We couldn't do anything right. We were immature, irresponsible, bad-mannered, undisciplined. All things considered, it's not too surprising they were on edge. We sat on our camp beds thinking of the bleak future of this country, this war, our strength as a group. And despite not getting on with the folks, this is one of the best trips we've ever had. Fishing, long game walks, big skies and singing songs around the campfire. I love that part of my diary. It's so teenagerish, so much angst. It's incredible the freedom the adults did afford us. The danger from terrorists was also very real, as described by the shooting down of the aeroplane. Were we armed? Did we carry a rifle? I can't remember. Let me read a news report about that ill-fated flight. Soon after flight 825 took off, a group of Zipra guerrillas hit it on its starboard wing with a Soviet-made surface-to-air missile, critically damaging the aircraft and forcing an emergency landing. An attempted belly landing in a cotton field just west of Karoy was foiled by a ditch, which cartwheeled the plane, and the plane broke up. Of the 52 passengers and four crew, 38 died in the crash. The insurgents then approached the wreckage, rounded up the ten survivors they could see, and massacred them with automatic gunfire. Three passengers survived by hiding in the surrounding bush, while a further five lived because they had gone to look for water before the guerrillas arrived. Those that survived the initial AK-47 bursts were bayoneted, including a mother and her three-week-old baby. Zipra leader Joshua Nkomo publicly claimed responsibility for shooting down the Hanyani in an interview with the BBC's Today programme the next day, saying the aircraft had been used for military purposes, but denied that his men had killed survivors on the ground. The majority of Rhodesians, both black and white, saw the act as an act of terrorism. At the memorial service, the dean of the Anglican Cathedral, John de Costa, gave the following sermon, damning what he described as a deafening silence from overseas. Times come when it is necessary to speak out and in direct and forthright terms like trumpets with unmistakable notes. And I believe that this is one such time. Nobody who holds sacred the dignity of human life can be anything but sickened at the events attending the crash of the Viscount Hunyani. Survivors have the greatest call on the sympathy and assistance of every other human being. The horror of the crash was bad enough, but that this should have been compounded by murder of the most savage and treacherous sort leaves us stunned with disbelief and brings revulsion in the minds of anyone deserving the name human. This bestiality, worse than anything in recent history, stinks in the nostrils of heaven. 
But are we deafened with the voice of protest from nations who call themselves civilized? We are not. Like men in the story of the Good Samaritan, they pass by on the other side. One listens for loud condemnation by Dr. David Owen, himself a medical doctor, trained to extend mercy and help to all in need. One listens and the silence is deafening. One listens for loud condemnation by the President of the United States of America, himself a man from the Bible Baptist belt, and again the silence is deafening. One listens for loud condemnation by the Pope, by the Chief Rabbi, by the Archbishop of Canterbury, by all who love the name of God, and again the silence is deafening. Back at Kariba, we children were reaping our own form of hell, particularly on James Hughes' sister Annabelle. Kariba is a man-made lake, with a shoreline peppered with dead, petrified Mapani trees. In places they stand sentinel, like rather creepy, if not beautiful, silent forests. The shoreline of Tishinga was patrolled by a huge, and rather infamous 16 or 17 foot croc named Bismarck. He would glide past our camp every day, keeping a beady eye on us all. Annabelle was younger than her brothers and me, and we did tend to taunt her somewhat. Don't get me wrong, I adored Annabelle, but I guess we were just being kids. According to Annabelle, one afternoon my sister, Annabelle and I, paddled up to an old petrified tree and left Annabelle hanging in the crook of the tree for about half an hour. Annabelle remembers this as longer, but as cruel as we were, surely we were not so foolish as to leave her all afternoon. Surely. It still brings shivers when I think how close Annabelle was to the water. I mean, Bismarck could have plucked her off like a tasty little morsel. Perhaps we did deserve the right bollocking we received that night. I'm not making excuses. What we did was terrible. But growing up in a war amongst hard-assed Vietnam War veterans, one's sense of what is considered normal behaviour seemed to be rather sketchy at best. The macho bravado emanating from our peers and these men of war rubbed off on us kids. Oh, Annabelle, I'm so sorry. I don't believe we ever did get together again as a group and the Hoods finally disbanded and went their own way. We grew up, I suppose. But those heady days along the banks of Lake Kariba are some of the most precious in my life. And this is a homage to that gang. Mandy, James, William, Annabelle, Larry, Mungo, Russell, Mark, George, Grant, and the whole bunch of you. Thank you. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, 
Blueberry and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.